Hello, and welcome back to the Center for Medical Education podcast called CME Anytime. This week's episode is entitled Head and Neck Trauma, and it's from our Trauma Module Mastery Series in preparation for the My EM Cert exam. Please enjoy. All right, let's uh, take a turn into head and neck trauma here. So this is a great reference slide, you know, just reminding you of the cranial nerve outflow tracts and their functions. This is going to become important in head and neck trauma. Again, here's the cranial nerve functions. I, we're not going to go over how to do a cranial nerve exam here, uh, but this is something that you can reference through the search index. Right. And I'm sure everybody has some kind of like inappropriate uh, mnemonic that they can remember for Prob- this. Probably. <laughs> Okay, same with the neuro exam. This is a great reference slide. We don't have to go through all of it, um, but it's just important to make sure that you hit all the key points. Okay, head trauma accounts for half of all trauma deaths, right? And for some reason on the boards, they love to test the Cushing reflex, so hypertension, bradycardia, but this is a really, really late finding, and it's an unreliable sign of increased intracranial pressure, right? Don't forget about scalp lax. They can bleed like crazy. Sometimes the blood is left on the street in a pre-hospital setting, and so you don't realize that that's been the source of blood loss, and that can lead to shock, especially in small kids. Um, CT is the imaging study of the choice in emergency department, and if you have hypotension and a head injury, you should be looking for other causes. Remember that a single episode of pre-hospital hypotension with a systolic less than 90, that's associated with increased mortality and TBI, so that's a big deal. So if a patient has a minor mechanism, they're not intoxicated, their GCS is 15, that's normal, by the way, no skull fracture, non-focal exam, normal mental status, no anticoagulations, they don't need a a CT scan, okay? Do think about skull x-rays. I think most of us um, are leaping straight to CT now, but for a foreign body, uh, for skull fractures, uh, a skull x-ray may be sufficient. Cerebral perfusion pressure, this is one of my favorite things here, right? So that's the difference between your mean arterial pressure and intracranial pressure. Most of the time in the ED, unless there's an EVD placed or something, we don't have a way to measure ICP. So assume it's high, right? Um, MAP, of course, is twice your diastolic pressure plus your systolic over three. So if you think about um, brain injury at cerebral perfusion pressure is less than 60, that means the patient really needs to maintain a normal or high mean arterial pressure in order to prevent uh, brain cell death. Always think about C-spine fracture in these patients, right? Everything's in close proximity there. So coup, contra-coup, head injuries, this is the concept of getting hit on one side and then having an injury um, on the opposite side because of uh, movement there. How about skull fracture? So, you know, you have a single linear non-depressed skull fracture. You don't have to do anything about that. It's going to heal, right? Temporal skull fracture, got to think about epidural hematomas from injury to the middle meningeal artery. Uh, An open skull fracture goes without saying needs antibiotics and a neurosurgical consult. Uh, I think this guy in the lower picture here probably has a depressed skull fracture, right? So one bone table width, that needs a neurosurgery to elevate that. And occipital skull fracture, got to think about subarachnoid blood. You can think about this coup contra coup injury concept. So, you know, when the, when the brain is moving faster than the cerebral spinal fluid that's supposed to be there to cushion it, that's when you get this kind of injury pattern. Um, posterior fossa hematoma can be a bad news because there's not a lot of room in there. Um, and you also have to think about cranial nerve injury because of the outflow in the brainstem. 
So basal or skull fractures. Um, so you want to look for fluid leakage, right? CSF leakage. So look at the ears, look at the nose, um, look for bleeding in the ear canals. You also want to look for your battle sign or raccoon sign, right? Your mastoid or orbital ecchymosis. Um, assess cranial nerves. So most leaks will resolve. Antibiotics are unhelpful. It doesn't mean neurosurgery won't recommend them. Um, plain films or CT can also be negative, but you can see air fluid levels in the sphenoid sinus um, or air in the posterior fossa. So when you're assessing the liquid, if they're, if they're leaking, you can take a look um, and you can see if there's a halo of clear fluid around blood-tinged um, fluid. And you can also check the glucose because CSF fluid has a glucose of around two-thirds of your blood glucose. Right. Now, there's also a test that not every hospital have, and that's, that's beta-transferrin, right? And that's very specific uh, for CSF. So if you can send this clear fluid, you're not sure what it is, and beta transference positive, it's, it's a cerebral spinal fluid leak. How about epidural hematoma? So usually this is arterial bleeding of the middle meningeal artery, right? It's between the skull and the dura, and it often is accompanied by temporal bone fracture. It has this kind of classic sort of lentiform or lens-shaped um, uh, appearance here, and it should not cross suture lines, right, because it's outside the dura. Um, this is the so-called talk and die syndrome, and unfortunately, that classic presentation rarely happens, but it might happen on a test. So you have immediate loss of consciousness, then you're awake for a while, you look fine, uh, and then you become obtunded and you don't wake up. 85% of these patients will have a dilated pupil, and that's from uh, impending ipsilateral herniation. Another picture of an epidural hematoma here shows you the external injury, right? So there's that scalp hematoma, and underneath it, there's the big bleed. Subdural hematomas. So this is caused by um, injury to the bridging veins between the dura and the arachnoid. So as you get older, the brain shrinks. So elderly patients are more at risk for this. Alcoholics are more at risk for this. Um, so presentation, you can get um, slow poop pupillary response. Um, you can have a decreased mental status, loss of consciousness. Um, and, you know, patients can be lucid, but I think that's more, if there's that lucid period with decompensation, that's more, as Aaron mentioned, epidural, um, epidural hematoma. And so if you're looking at CT and you're trying to determine the time period, um, you can take a look by what the blood looks like. So if it's less than 24 hours, um, it's usually bright on CT, so that's more acute. If it's 24 hours to two weeks, this is isodense, and that's your subacute um, bleed. And if it's more than two weeks, and this is uh, typically darker. And the way that it looks here is as opposed to you know that football shape, here you get more of a crescent-shaped bleed, and you can take a look in the images that are on the screen there. And then for, um, this is just another example, and this is kind of the coup, contra-coup injury. So you can see that they were hit on one side, and then on the other side, you can see the subdural hematoma. Right. So what about herniation, right? I think most of us think about um, a lateral, you know, uncle herniation. That's kind of the classic syndrome we learn with a blown pupil. For central herniation, an early sign might be a cranial of six palsy, so inability to uh, abduct the eye, right? Because cranial nerve six controls your lateral rectus muscle. Uh, there's tonsillar herniation, which is the, the cerebellar tonsils that herniate through the foramen magnum that can cause respiratory arrest. Uh, the most common thing we talked about is uncle herniation, so across the t uh, tentorium cerebelli. Uh, third cranial nerve is squeezed, and so you get this ipsilateral fixed and dilated pupil, right? And that's usually the same side uh, as the mass lesion. And you can have contralateral hemiplegia, brainstem compression, coma, respiratory arrest. So what do we do if we're worried about increased uh, ICP? So 
patients, you know, if their GCS is less than eight, you're going to intubate them. Make sure to elevate the head of the bed. These patients, you'll um, ventilate them as normal. But if it looks like they are going to herniate, right, if this is impending, then you can hyperventilate the patient. Um, and th the, um, the reasoning behind this is because if you decrease their PCO2, you can increase their pH, causing vasoconstriction, which would decrease the ICP. And if you're going to do it, then the goal, PCO2 would be around 30 to 35 uh, millimeters of mercury. So, and, and just as a reminder, the cerebral perfusion pressure, it's your mean arterial pressure minus your intracranial pressure. So what else can we do for these patients? Um, you can give hypertonic saline. So this is your 3%, typically given as a 100 to 250 uh, milliliter bolus. You can also do mannitol. Um, and this gives you that osmotic diuresis. Um, and steroids, not beneficial here. How about traumatic seizures? So, you know, a, a sort of benign traumatic seizures, an immediate brief seizure with a non-focal exam, those don't necessarily need to be treated. They're associated with the initial injury. Uh, if you have mass effect, a focal neuro exam, a depressed skull fracture, penetrating injury, you're at higher risk for post-traumatic seizures. So prophylaxis of early post-traumatic seizures, that's the phenytoin or the levetiracetam in the first seven days, that decreases the incidence of early post-traumatic seizures, but it doesn't affect the incidence of delayed post-traumatic seizures or likely that you develop epilepsy, and that can happen mostly within the first year. Diffuse axonal injuries. So this is due to shear force injuries in white matter tracts um, and typically uh, can be seen in acceleration, deceleration injuries. Um, CT scan, you can see some multiple small white matter lesions, typically not overly impressive, um, but these patients look bad. So they could have coma despite a normal ICP and the prognosis here is generally poor. Uh, pediatric head trauma. There's some differences here. Uh, they have a, a different cerebral compliance curve, so that can lead to problems. They have more non-surgical lesions, so more diffuse cerebral edema, more diffuse axonal injury. Uh, there's, of course, pediatric concussion syndrome, which is kind of a diffuse cerebral hyperemia or hyperperfusion syndrome. The GCS might wax and wane, and their skull is weaker than adult skulls. So, Children less than two years old are particularly at risk for head injury, um, particularly less than six months. And the reason why is that their skulls are thinner and they can fracture more easily. So we worry about fractures in the parietal and temporal area. Um, large scalp hematomas can indicate an underlying fracture. And um, we're going to talk about this in a couple minutes when we talk about uh, some of the rules, like the PCARN rules for evaluating head trauma in children. We should also worry about persistent nausea vomiting or delayed nausea or vomiting. So um, intracerebral hemorrhage, so this can occur with minor mechanisms, and this is why we really have to assess these patients very carefully. And Aaron, you want to talk about the leptomeningeal cyst? Yeah, so this is kind of a unique pediatric problem, typically. So what happens is that you have a fracture, and then underneath it, the dura is torn. And so uh, as uh, you get this dural stretching, you get this uh, fracture that sort of grows over time and can get pretty large and need surgical repair. So if you have a pediatric skull fracture, it should be re-x-rayed in a couple of months to make sure the fracture isn't growing or expanding. 
Okay, so what else do we need to know with um, pediatric head trauma? So concussion is a big thing, right? There's lots of concussion clinics. And you can get this um, alteration in mental status, right, with no neurologic findings. And you can have a normal CT. So typically we don't MR, um, you know, kids in the emergency department. Um, but sometimes you can see subtle findings there. Um, also, just to be aware of the, of the post-concussion syndrome. So you can get long-term neuropsych sequelae here. So kids can have insomnia, irritability, inattention tension, you know, they could be anxious, dizzy. So this can change, you know, mom or dad might say, bring the kid in and be like, this isn't how they normally act. Um, also, it's important to note second impact syndrome. So this is what you can see in the football injury, right? Where, um, where the kids are getting multiple head trauma and it may not be the first one that does them in, but the second one can cause uh, cerebral swelling and can be devastating. So it is important to talk about this um, with patients that you're seeing, you know, during their first injury to tell them that, you know, the return to play instructions that they need to be out. Then we had mentioned the PCARN rules. This is a great slide to use as a reference. And this tells us who to CT scan, right? Who needs imaging and who can be observed. And they break it down by kids younger than two years old and then older than two years old. All right, let's change directions a little bit and talk about penetrating neck injury, right? So any wound which violates the platysma, right? That's that sort of flat muscle in the front part of your neck here. Most injuries occur in zone two. We're going to describe the zones of neck injury in a couple of slides. Vascular injuries are common. You need to get proximal and distal control. Um, deaths occur from exsanguination, from CNS injury, uh, from loss of airway. So these people may need to be intubated early to protect them from, for example, an expanding neck hematoma. Uh, potentially fatal complication is air entrainment and air embolism. There's a classically described sort of machinery sounding murmur. Uh, you can see there, there's some uh, gas in that CT scan slice. Um, place the patient in Trendelenburg and left lateral decubitus position. The idea there is if the, if the air embolism is in the right ventricle to kind of hold it in the apex of the right ventricle. Uh, and then there's a couple things you can do. You know, people have described trying to place a central line and aspirate it or going to hyperbarics to try to decrease it into microemboli. How about signs of penetrating neck injury? So these are hard signs, right? This means it's very likely there's significant injury. They seem pretty obvious, right? Hypotension, arterial bleeding, expanding hematoma, big hemothorax, focal deficit, et cetera. The soft signs are the things that need a little more attention and diagnostic evaluation. Strider, hoarseness, you may have vocal cord paralysis, you know, so you're going to see that if you do an NP scope, but otherwise it's going to be your ENT surgeons, or your head and neck surgeon going to see that. Uh, subcutaneous air can be a sign of underlying injury, facial nerve injuries. So let's go over the zones of the neck, right? So zone one is below the cricoid cartilage. That's a thoracic surgical problem if you have hard signs of injury. Zone two is between the mandible angle and the cricoid, right? That often requires exploration. Technically, that's the least difficult because you have the best exposure. Zone three is basically a facial injury. It's above the angle of the mandible, and you might have to disarticulate your mandible to fix the injury if there's hard signs. Now, what about stable patients? So down in zone one below the cricoid, we're talking about angiography, perhaps an esophagogram or endoscopy or bronchoscopy or both. In zone two, maybe exploration, right? Or may also be the same as zone one. And in zone three, typically you're only going to do angiography or CT angiography. This is a nice reference slide um, just to talk about how you triage and evaluate penetrating neck injuries. I won't go through it, but it'll be searchable in your index. So penetrating foreign bodies. So the important thing to remember is that if a patient has something sticking out of them, 
leave it there, right? Let them take care. That's a good thing to know in life, right? (laughs) Right. So it's, you know, leave it there. Let them go to the OR. Let the surgeon take it out because this way you can control any kind of bleeding that may result from it. Um, You want to stabilize it with a bulky dressing because the the more you can minimize movement, the less damage it can do. And... uh, you know, likewise, you you don't want to cut it off. So if something's sticking out, as long as they can fit through the door or fit in the ambulance, you don't want to cut it because the more you jiggle that thing, right, the more injury that you can do there. Um, if there's massive hemorrhage or additional injuries, you can assess it as well. How about blunt neck trauma, right? So this is uh, neck versus steering wheel, neck versus seatbelt, clothesline injuries. You've got a nice looking sort of seatbelt sign right there. So you can have laryngotracheal and pharyngoesophageal injuries. They can be kind of subtle. A lot of times you're only going to see those on a CT scan or diagnostic imaging. Um, you can have vascular injury, right? So blunt cerebrovascular injury is a big deal, uh, can lead to stroke, pseudoaneurysm. Uh, neurologic symptoms might be delayed, right? Because you have some injury to your vascular endothelium, and then you have dissection. And it's only when you have thrombosis that you get your, your stroke symptoms or your neurosymptoms. Um, chiropractic manipulation. This is, uh, this is a real phenomenon. So chiropractic, yoga, uh, going to the hairdresser, right? Um, these can cause carotid or vertebral artery dissections. And the diagnostic test of choice these days is a CT with contrast angiography. Here's an example uh, of angio of a carotid artery dissection. Uh, this can give you a TIA symptom, stroke syndromes, or produce a Horner syndrome from interruption of the cervical sympathetics. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To learn more about our educational products, please go to ccme.org. Bye for now.